oil prices go where they need to go to kill demand and not just kill a little bit of demand in emerging markets, but kill demand. China had the lowest coal inventories they'd ever we've ever measured over there. And so coal prices spike in China. So Asian financial crisis leads us into it. And now we're at COVID, right? And COVID has, I think, been the bookend of what's coming, a storm that's been coming. And I think these first ETFs that have come out is the, it's the official acceptance of the United States that we've accepted Bitcoin, accepted crypto. And it's only going to grow from here. There are pools of capital lined up waiting to get into this asset. And, there, and the, door is only, the doorway is only so big. We don't do the forecasting and all that stuff. I think the stock to flow model is garbage. But um, at the end of the day, I think we go higher. Today on Forward Guidance, we have the pleasure of speaking to Warren Pies, the founder of 314 Researcher. Warren, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thanks, Jack. Uh, excited to be here. Warren, you're an energy analyst. You started out being very in the weeds and in, in analyzing you know, what's going on in oil and natural gas, the futures curves. Uh, more recently, though, you've started your own firm, 314 Research, and you have a much more holistic view that's very quantitative. Just uh, tell viewers before we get into it, we're going to get talk oil, inflation, stock bond correlation, real assets, Bitcoin. We're going to run the gamut today. We've got a lot to talk about. But before we get into it, Warren, just tell us uh, quickly about, about your process. The impetus for 314 and why we started the company is really because we want to be our, our background. My background is data driven and quantitative, and that's uh, partners that work with me. And that's our background collectively. Uh, so we want to stick with that and we, we build models and systems and rules based trading is is really an investing is really our our forte. But the reason we needed a new company is because our broad thesis is that what's worked over the last 25 years is unlikely to work in the next 25 years for your average asset allocator and investor. And, you know, at the heart of that is this market structure that we've seen since 1998, where we've seen bonds and stocks trade against each other, a negative correlation between bonds and stocks, persistently falling interest rates. So when you net it all out, 60-40 has had just a monumental run for 25 years. And I just think it's hard to see how the next 25 years we duplicate that. And I think there are some key things that are changing now that uh, will ultimately cause that market structure to unravel. Yeah, so an asset allocator is someone who allocates money to different assets, which have different return profiles, different uh, uh, volatilities, different correlations with each other. So when you say 60-40, that, of course, is the historical sort of vanilla portfolio blend, where it's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And the idea being is that bonds have a you know, lower return than stocks, but they are more stable. And in particular, as you said, since 1998, uh, they have been a ballast against bad performance in stocks, against drawdown in the equity markets. So when stocks have a horrible day and they're down 3%, typically you'll find that treasury bonds perform well. So you have this sort of uh, negative correlation that is extremely beneficial because, you know, if, if let's say you and I, Warren, we're, you know, we're, let's say, investors, we're caring about the next 30 years. We don't really care about a daily thing. But if you're a hedge fund manager or a 
RIA, you have to send a, you know, a, a note of your performance every month to clients. And if stocks are down 12%, you really want to have those bonds to make you look less bad to your clients so they won't pull their money. So it's extremely important to people to have that negative correlation. Talk to us about why that negative correlation has been in place, why bonds have been sort of, you know, ha have had stocks back over the past 20, 25, 30 years. And why is it that uh, that's been the case? And why do you think it will change? Right before I jump into that, let's remember just what, when we say that we've had this negative correlation um, since 1998, and we start talking about the reasons, let's frame it up and just really understand how, how different the last 25 years has been from the, the history that preceded it. And so since 1998, if you just took the 100 worst days for the stock market, the bond treasury, long-term treasury bonds were up 84 out of 100 of those 100 days. So the vast, some of the perfect hedge, you just don't find this in the markets. You can scan through any other asset. People talk about gold as a risk-off asset. As, uh, they, they talk about some people may want to throw Bitcoin in there. None of these things, gold, commodities, economically sensitive assets, None of these things have this hedge property that treasuries, long-term treasuries have had. So 84 out of 100 days, the worst days for stocks, treasuries are up. That means stocks down, rates down, bond prices up. Perfect hedge for the stock market. Now, if we go before 1998, you saw the numbers are way less, look way different. So 35 of the 100 worst days pre-1998 we saw stocks in, or bonds up on days that stocks were down. The, the point is that this kind of market structure that we're familiar with, it didn't exist prior to 1998. This is a new structure. So I think it's important to try and say, why did this happen? What events around 1998 in the turn of the century really gave rise to the market structure we know right now? We kind of think that there are a number of things that happened, but I do believe that we, there's a historic tendency when you look back for crises, crises to mark turning points. So in 1998, we had uh, the Asian financial crisis, 97, 98. Um, and that, I think, was the crisis that bookended, that began this era. So 98, Asian financial crisis, 99, the, the euro begins trading, uh, 2000, China is permitted in entry into the WTO. These were all uh, kind of a confluence of events that allowed for Asia to become the manufacturer of the world. And that I think was the big, that, that created a disinflationary tailwind for asset markets that's really given us the market structure we're familiar with. And, and why is that? Why would you see disinflationary uh, tailwinds due to globalization, rapid globalization at the turn of the century. Why would that affect the stock bond correlation? Well, if you just zoom out and you think very basically, what what drives stock and bond returns? Really, there are two factors, growth, economic growth, and inflation. So we have economic growth and inflation. That's the two things that historically will, when you really just just wash all the other stuff out, those are the two big drivers. And so when you take inflation off the table due to just rapid globalization, disinflation of durable goods and other factors we can get into, you see growth becoming the primary driver of everything. And when growth is the only driver of stock and bond returns, we have falling growth means falling stock prices, 
means rising bond prices. The other factor is you have current account surpluses in the Asian economies, which who became the manufacturers, they now recycle these dollars into the treasury market. So there's a persistent bid there. And then as this negative correlation kind of arose, you've seen term premium in the, in the bond market collapse, which indicates to me that a lot of folks, a lot of asset allocators use bonds as a hedging instrument for stocks. So the bottom line is when you remove inflation as a concern for a long-term period, a long-term disinflationary period like we've been in, you see this kind of market structure where stocks and bonds trade opposite of each other arise. Well, like I said, we had the crisis back in the Asian financial crisis, currencies collapse in Asia. That allows for you know the economics of manufacturing in Asia start improving. You also see, like I said, the big 800-pound gorilla was China and access to the Chinese uh, labor market for for um, developed market corporations. And so they become the manufacturer of the world. Um, and that's the, the case for really the last 25 years. When you look at it, crises mark these turning points. So Asian financial crisis leads us into it. And now we're at COVID, right? And COVID has, I think, been the bookend of what's coming, a storm that's been coming where we are, I wouldn't say globalization is going away. That, that would be really foolish and kind of like more or less a dark ages kind of viewpoint. But I think we are going to change the global supply chain coming out of this. And now we have a catalyst to change that global supply chain. I think that the that America writ large is reconsidering, you know, whether we want to have China manufacture so many of our essential goods, you know, like maybe shoes and textiles are okay, but should they be manufacturing our pharmaceuticals? Should semiconductors be manufactured um, offshore like they are? And I think that you're starting to see this come up in uh, in politics. You see it in the Build Back Better plan even. There's tax credits for reshoring and onshoring of manufacturing. And one thing we did was we looked at uh, company calls, earnings call transcripts, and there've just been a massive spike in the number of mentions, corporate mentions of onshoring, reshoring, and nearshoring. So to me, I think we are, there's a very good chance, the odds have increased substantially coming out of COVID that something has changed in the world supply chain, that we are going to get more regional at the very least in our supply chains, which net net, that means we're not just going where the cheapest labor source is. There are other considerations beyond economics on how we order our supply chain. That is inflationary. That is a long-term disinflationary tailwind, which can turn into an inflationary headwind. That's what I see happening over the, the next couple decades. Warren, everyone is noticing that something is going on here that, uh, you know, they're in our supply chains, uh, there's huge distortions, like new orders are ramping, backlogs are swelling, inventories are very low, delays, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to get products, products are much more expensive, uh, shipping costs have swelled uh, as much as five times, like the price of, of natural gas in Europe and Asia is, is very high. You have a great chart, which is the percentage of commodities that are trading above their pre-COVID highs, and it's something like 90 to 95%. And so reflation, as I believe your your chart says, reflation has been accomplished. What makes you think, Warren, that this will be a persistent trend, that the prices of commodities, and we'll get into oil in, it in a second, but you know, the price of commodities will 
um, continue to rise? A lot of people are saying it's transitory. What makes you think that it will continue? Yeah, I mean, this is where... I think this is where you really need to be a little bit nuanced when you think about the current landscape. And so um, the first thing we see, the biggest thing we see is on the housing side, shelter side of inflation. So um, OER, owner's equivalent rents, 25% of CPI. We did a really basic model to show how do home prices move with, um, or how does OER follow home prices? It takes about 18 months. So we've seen record uh, increases in home prices in the United States, this is going to start pushing up a 25% component of the CPI structurally because there's a structural undersupply in the U.S. housing market into next year. So inflation begins to become a pressure as well. If you had to put me into a category, despite all that preamble I just gave, I would be in the, the transitory camp. I believe that the the price signals we're seeing right now, the ones that we're seeing right now, are by and large due to acute supply chain stress that will ultimately work out. A lot of these things, they will abate. You will see CPI come down. You have to kind of break that CPI down and understand what's driving it and what parts will become structural, what parts are transitory. And when you do that work, you can kind of see that that most of what I think people are setting their hair on fire over this year is really just... um, supply chain stress that will go away. So we're talking about, honestly, a much bigger, longer term secular kind of force that's going to be changing here coming out of COVID. The trick always with these things is timing them, right? And so you can say, I see this force happening. I see under, this is like an energy, and we'll talk about energy, I'm sure. I see underinvestment for years in energy, which means decline curves globally will, will ramp. Well. This story is not new. If you're just tuning in now and you're hearing someone say that, you could have listened to Schlumberger back in 2017. You could have you have heard this for years. For years you could have heard this. So these big secular changes, they're, they, they're hard to time. And you can tell a good story with them, but you need to always have your risk management tools to help you time. So near term, I think that I would be in team, on team transitory. But longer term, I do believe that we are going to level up the inflation that we're seeing. So this could create some confusion, especially next year, because next year I think you could see some of these near-term prices abate. Maybe people put their take their foot off the gas, maybe even bonds get a bit or something, depending on what happens in China. But I think you want to keep your eye on the longer-term prize and position yourself with systems that can navigate that. Warren, can you explain the investment implications for this? If inflation continues to be hot, one would think that treasury bonds would not perform so well because they're paid in dollars and the, the currency that is the coupon and it's paid is itself being devalued. And you're seeing that, you know, when you go to the store. And, but also it's it's those longer duration assets, a 30-year treasury bond, a longer duration asset than a, a three-month treasury bill. So talk to me about the role of duration. You're someone who, you've taught me a lot about just why duration is so important. So can you explain uh, simply what it is why it's so important, and why you think, if your thesis is right, shorter duration assets might be the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I've been calling this the duration heuristic in our work. And I earlier in the year said this, I think, is the most powerful force in the current market, which is that you have this kind of divide between uh, assets that are producing a lot of current income or near-term income 
with high leverage to economic, near-term economic activity. And so the poster child for that short duration group, because the shorter duration, it means that you're, the majority of your cash flows are coming in the near term. Long duration, meaning that the majority of your cash flows, like you said with Tesla, are coming in the long term. And so the longer out you go with your cash flows, the lower interest rates go, you can discount those back and you get a bigger net present value. It's less, uh, the, the bigger driver for short duration is near term economic activity. They're not looking at 30 years out into the future, you know, what the 32 year treasury is doing. They're looking at near term economic activity. So uh, to the extent you see near term economic activity start ramping up, these energy stocks basically start rallying, you know, and that's that's been the barbell we've seen. So we, we've, we show a chart where we have, we basically compare tech as the long duration in the equity markets and energy as a short duration in equity markets. And this is a concept that we're really mapping over from the bond market. So a long-term bond is long duration, short-term bond, bond is short duration. We can think of equities, I think, in the same framework. So energy would be like your short-term bond. It's moving according to near-term economic um, issues. And long duration would be like tech, Tesla, any of these unprofitable companies that all promise profitability at some point in the the distant, distant future. And so that's been a, a huge factor for, you know, how you want to position your portfolio through this, this crisis. Uh, Warren, let's, let's zoom in uh, on the commodity landscape. If bonds can no longer be trusted to be a hedge against equity drawdowns, you know, why do you think commodities uh, can be? So commodities coming out of COVID have been on fire. And this is the exact kind of, I think, trimmer that you see before the big earthquake uh, years down the road. And the big thing about commodities, and this goes into the oil stuff, is that I, I used to show this chart years ago when I started, was they run in really eight-year cycles. It's really the, um, the graphical depiction of the old phrase that high prices cure high prices. So these things, you know, if you have a high price, you're going to get more investment, more supply, and ultimately crush the price. But these things work with the long tail. And so in the oil market in particular, we've had, we had the shale revolution, which added a ton of new supply to the market and upended really the whole uh, picture of how energy worked. And it was also a disinflationary tailwind, which again, if you look at like the CPI and the Fed's target of 2% CPI, well, when did the Fed start missing their target? It was around 2014 when oil collapsed. So the Fed CPI has been off its 2% path since then. I think that what's happened now, the pendulum has swung totally the other direction. So we were just drilling and exploring for all those years. Um, and now it is capital discipline, buybacks, dividends, you know, screw CapEx. We want our money back, short duration, exactly what you're saying. We want a short payback period. We want big dividends, you know, et cetera. And that's the zeitgeist of the energy market. And that's the type of, that is the type of environment where you're going to need higher prices to incent that money to come in. And so we've had a multi-year period now since oil's collapsed where long cycle projects in particular, you haven't seen CapEx. And the big bet I think from oil bulls is that this period of underinvestment is now coming home to roost, that we will have a, um, a true super cycle in energy because you can't just bring a barrel of oil on to the market like that. You know, it takes long-term planning and spending and development. And uh, shale's a little different than that, but for the most part, 
it takes multiple years to bring a new barrel of production online. Do you think that we have a super cycle potential? For example, I mean, if you look at oil over the past uh, 40 years, you can see a, you know, a clear super cycle from you know, maybe the late 1990s to 2008. Uh, and then we've been in a clear bear market since 2014 when, when we had the, the shale oil bust. Uh, the price of oil is getting close to those 2014 highs. Yeah, so there's kind of like, I'd say, a few ingredients that you would put into the, the super cycle recipe. And I would say, let's say three of them. And I agree with two of them and don't agree with the third. So number one is we are, despite the ESG hype and the decarbonization movement, we are not getting off oil anytime soon. I agree with that. We have a world where if you go back to 1975, we were 95% of total energy consumption globally was hydrocarbon. So from 1975 to present, that number's gone from 95% to 85%. All right. So we've, we've managed to carve 10% off of the hydrocarbon mix in that period of time. And something that I think a lot of people miss on this is in that period, yes, the percentage of total energy consumption for hydrocarbons has gone from 95 to 85, but hydrocarbon consumption has gone up basically every year. So your denominator gets bigger as the world economy grows. You almost need to, to, to stop the growth of hydrocarbon consumption. You almost need to throw us into um, the stone age um, or do some do a five-year lockdown or something like that for coronavirus. But but that is a real problem for people who think that like a Kathy Wood who who thinks we're done with oil that you know this is going the way of whale oil and stuff like that we we are not getting down uh, even if we hit the IEA's projections which is that by 2040 we'd be at 73 percent hydrocarbons out of total energy production is aggressive I don't think we'll even probably hit that it would take so much it would take so much from policymakers to get there. But even then, we'd be consuming more gross hydrocarbons. So I, I believe that's the first part of the super cycle recipe. And I agree with that. The second part is, as I said, underinvestment for years creates depletion rates come up, decline curves come up. Uh, and ultimately, that's going to create a, a hole in the oil market where we don't have enough supply to meet demand down the road. I also agree with that. I think that there's that that's absolutely true. You, you, we have had disinvestment is the what's ruled the day in the energy markets and in the oil markets. Now, the third part that I don't agree with is timing. You see, like bulls everywhere right now, and the big thing is they're taking these first two things I'm talking about. I believe again, just similar to what we talked about, and they're mapping it onto the current price explosion. And I think that my opinion is. The cause and effect are off. These things that you're, these are real issues. The fact that we can't get off hydrocarbons and the fact that we haven't invested, those are real issues and they will power higher oil prices. But what we're seeing today is not a result of that. What we're seeing today is because OPEC did aggressive cuts. Shale has been paralyzed by those OPEC aggressive cuts. Two million barrels of shale have come offline. OPEC cut so many barrels off the market, like at the height of the pandemic, they had almost 10 million barrels off the market, depending on how you want to count it. These, th these things are, they're just now putting oil back into the market. They've purposefully run this thing 
at a massive near-term deficit. It's drained inventories, pushed curves into backwardation, and pushed the price higher. This is a near-term move by OPEC. They could have ended this at any point in the last few months. They could, I believe, they have the spare capacity, despite all the conspiracy theorists out there, to end it right now. But they want the price higher um, for a number of reasons. They think they can have a higher price for a number of reasons. But this ends at some point. You know, they're adding 400,000 barrels every month. That new supply will eventually hit the supply-demand equation and start, you'd see that in our indicators, we look at backwardation starting to weaken and turn structure, things like that. To me, that's the near-term thing. I am not, this is not the beginning of a super cycle. By the way, I count it, you know, I'm looking more at towards the end of next year, beginning of 2023 for when like the true fireworks start. So a long-term bull on the price of oil, but short-term, yeah, you don't think the fireworks are anywhere here. Warren, talk to me about how the, hyper bullish case for oil, how just basically the price is going to rise because we haven't been investing. That has actually not been the main reason for the price rise over the past three months, let's say. You were telling me yesterday that the real price was fuel switching, that the price of coal in China, the price of natural gas in Europe is so high, prohibitively high, that people are actually turning back. They're saying, hey, we don't want this cheap coal. Then they're turning to oil to heat their houses. And that you think that the the only hyper bullish case that remains to you is if we have a true, extremely cold winter. And there you think we could see some fireworks, uh, right? Yeah, and, and just to be clear, you know, this was not in anyone's secular bull case. This was not the one, you know, people were speaking about the secular bull. They talked about the first two things. Can't quit hydrocarbons, haven't invested. Well. What we have right now, what's really gotten us from like, say, upper 70s to upper 80s on Brent is this, you know, more or less energy crisis, which, you know, it started in China and Europe. And, you know, the fact of the matter is like China had the lowest coal inventories they'd ever we've ever measured over there. And so coal prices spike in China. China now needs to secure hydrocarbons for the winter. And the government prioritized that. This started in, if you look at a chart of European natural gas prices on an oil equivalent basis, they, they're at about $198 a barrel, $200 a barrel right now, depending on, I haven't checked it today or yesterday even. But the bottom line is they're way over the price of oil. But they were under the price of oil for years. They crossed over the oil equivalent uh, number in mid-August. The, the pull from China, which happened in August into September on hydrocarbons on heating uh, and cooling hydrocarbons, utility-based hydrocarbons over the last couple months has driven up the price of coal in China, of natural gas in Europe. And now you're seeing fuel switching specifically in Europe. We don't think of uh, heating oil in the U.S. as being a real option anymore, but in, in Europe it is. And so when you see the price of, of natural gas basically double the price of oil, you now open up the option to use oil in the form of heating oil uh, to to heat your your homes in the in the winter in, in Europe. That's like a million to a million and a half barrels a day of new demand that no one had in their equation. So we could be running at a two million barrel a day deficit. This happens, this energy crisis, and now we're at like a three or four million barrel a day deficit. I don't know that we've ever seen a near term deficit that is that stark. In the oil market, not one that I've ever observed. It's it's massive, which is why you see this like such steep backwardation 
every inventory is draining. It's just like what's happening in the market when you have this kind of deficit is the, mar- the, the curve moves in backwardation and it's like the equivalent of a, the invisible hand of the market taking every, every inventory tank in the world, turning it upside down and shaking that oil out. That's what's happened and the driver, the proximate cause of this has been the energy crisis. And so I don't think that was in the um, secular bull bingo card for the for the secular bulls out there. And I also think that if you're making a bet on much higher oil prices in the near term now, you're really betting on weather at this point, I believe. Weather, if we have an extreme winter, then yeah, I mean, we could go higher. Even with this new demand, which is kind of like, this is transitory demand, let's be honest, because at some point winter will pass or it will become mild and these fuels will, will natural gas, coal in China, will China's bringing coal uh, supplies online right now. I mean, there are questions about how quickly you can do that, but I think they can do it pretty quickly. It's just, they'll say, screw the, the environment uh, and they'll bring on new coal supplies. So this stuff will alleviate that pressure. This is a transitory um, one million to a million and a half barrels of bandit. Even with this, we're below demand where of pre-pandemic. So it's hard for me to say, um, yeah, this is like some big super cycle. Let's, let's put let's put up a chart of a, of a futures curve. In when I first encountered a futures curve of oil, Warren, my assumption was, oh, contango, the price of oil for 2024 is higher than it is now. That's bullish. The market thinks that the price of oil is going up. Why is that extremely wrong? And in fact, it's the opposite case. Yeah, we've talked about this before. And what I say is that it's, I think, pretty evident and provable at this point is the futures curve is a market management tool and not a prediction. So when you look out and you say, and it's a common mistake, you look out and say um, that the market is predicting X oil price in five years. And let's say it's, we're in backwardation, so that number is lower than where we're at right now. You'd say, oh, the market's bearish. The market's predicting that we're gonna go down in five years. And that's not what the market's doing at all. Number one, five years out is a really thinly traded part of the curve, but really um, backwardation and the curve in general is a market management tool. And what I mean by that is when we get into backwardation, you're calling oil out of storage because Basically, the most valuable piece of the curve is the prompt market. So you're getting, you're incenting oil out of storage onto the prompt market. If we shift into contango, what you're incenting really is to buy at spot store and sell forward, right? So you buy at the prompt, you don't, you don't sell at the prompt, you're buying at the prompt and selling forward and you capture that spread. And the steeper that spread gets, the more expensive your storage options are. So if you think... A typical contango maybe is a dollar or two dollars, you know, then you, a barrel, then, you know, any storage play, the economics of any storage play below that or any storage play cost below that would be economic for a, a buy and sell forward. Like when we went through the coronavirus or a recession, you can see like a 10, 20 dollar super contango that opens up between prompt and futures. And that tells you you can use like you could be storing oil in your swimming pool. I mean, basically everything is economic, VLCCs, floating storage, all that stuff. It's just basically giving you that signal. The market is oversupplied. Don't put that oil in the market, put it into storage. That's what Contango says. Backwardation is exactly the opposite. Market needs oil, take it out of storage, give it to the prompt market. We need it right now because there's not enough prompt supply coming on the market. And, and that's been the state of the of the market since we went through, since we went through COVID. OPEC had all these cuts 
And then uh, essentially uh, the curve switches into backwardation, we drain the inventory. So we spent a long time draining the excess inventories that we had um, that we had built up through the, the oil price war and, and the coronavirus and everything else from spring of 2020. Uh, we've now gone, you know, normalized back to like, you know, a five-year average. And uh, basically uh, that's what, that's all been the curve doing that work. Yeah. And you've got some fantastic work showing how uh, backwardation is when you want to be buying oil and contango is when you want to be selling it. You also have a chart just about the production, the how slow US, US oil production has been slow to return. We're short about 2 million barrels. Do you think that that's coming back uh, anytime soon? And then also, what's your outlook on, let's say, you know, American oil stocks like ExxonMobil, uh, take your pick, which are going to report, uh, you know, this is, we're filming this on Wednesday. This will air on Friday the 29th, which I believe is when Exxon is, is reporting. I would assume that these companies are just printing money because they've cut their costs. They're focused on paying back debt and uh, dividends, buying back their stock, not building back well. So, you know, we talked about the price of the underlying commodity oil. What do you think about these, about the stocks? Well, I mean, the stocks are going to more or less trade with commodities. Um, and there's, there's some truth that they'll be, they'll make money this quarter, but a lot of, a lot of the focus is going to be how hedged were you? as a producer. And there are a lot of producers, especially in the natural gas space that have hedged almost all their production. And so, you know, and this is spot, you know, versus strip, which I like to use for natural gas spot is above $5, which we haven't been there for a long time, even though we're there um, in the natural gas market, you know, I, you're not going to realize that for the majority of your producers. So I've seen some people go out and they look for the least hedged natural gas producer and they want to play that way. But a lot of times the least hedged natural gas producer is also pretty garbage. So, because they're the ones who have to take that risk. Right. They're kind of, you know, rolling the dice a little bit and it's a little bit of a signal. There is a, a strategy to it too. But um, yeah, I wouldn't buy just based on their hedging strategy. You want to buy based off of, this is why I go back to the long term. I'm not, I think, trying to trade the daily, weekly, uh, even monthly oil prices really hard. Natural gas probably even harder to a certain extent because weather is a bigger factor there. So I, I think that near term, you're riding the trends. Like we have a, a yield optimizer model, for instance. This is how I would you know use my short term trading strategy for energy. Our yield optimizer model has 12 different assets, which all spit out cash flow and dividends. Energy's in there. It's like our short duration version in the mark in that model, and it's max overweight energy. It's been max overweight energy, but this thing is super sensitive. It could dial that back at the first sign of weakness. So it's riding it right now. If you're a trader, I think you continue to ride that, but you have like one foot out the door. So, but I don't think that's the most interesting thing. I think what do you want to own for the full cycle is what I've been really recommending to my clients. And to me, there are a handful of large cap Canadian stocks that you can own for the full cycle. And that has been the place since end of last year through the entirety of this year, we've had weakness in energy stocks. We've, we've, we've continued, even though our model at some points, we go off of energy and back on. We've continued to, to say like, you know, Suncor's lag, but still big cap, oil sands, Suncor, Canadian natural is our favorite pick. Those two large cap Canadian stocks, I think continue to over the long term outperform versus the shale in um, American uh, counterparts. And the truth is Canada is already back above pre-pandemic production levels while the U.S. is 2 million barrels below. And so I'm shying away from 
from shale for right now and focusing more on the Canadian side. And remember, with the big integrateds in America, you're getting a lot of refining exposure refiners. I don't know if you think that this energy crisis is going to last. This the the one that originated in China went to to Europe is going to last. Then maybe those refining margins stay kind of wide. But I don't see that. I think that we're still in this supply constrained market where crack spreads are are structurally lower for a bit. I don't, I don't love the idea of owning refiners anymore. So bottom line is I'm with the full cycle. The full cycle plays up in Canada. And the tickers for those Canadian stocks you said are C and Q and SU. If you want the more vanilla sort of U.S. global large cap exposure, that's you can get that via XLE, the, the energy ETF. Warren, my final question on oil is can the broader market, can the economy handle it? You know, in the 1970s, a very tough time to, to be in the economy, to be in the markets. Uh, that was when oil s- uh, surged. Obviously, a great time to be an oil producer. But there's sort of what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. What's good for... Uh, oil stocks, the price of oil surging is not good for the broader economy. Uh, you, I think I saw you say on Twitter that we can't handle $100 oil. Why do you think that's the case? It's a matter of, I think at 90 and above, you start seeing negative feedback loops. This is why I am would say near-term cautious on the price of oil. So we're at 86, we get to 90, and by our measures, you start seeing the beginnings of demand destruction kick in at 90. And people will say, oh, hey, look, we, you know, the United States is less dependent on um, oil as part of the economy. Each unit of GDP is less oil intensive. Well, oil demand is global. You know, you have to look now more when you're thinking about demand destruction, you have to look more at the emerging markets and, and, um, and uh, non-OECD countries. And so when we look at it and, and run the numbers, I think the demand is more elastic than the typical analyst assumes. And this is something I've looked at for years is that the analyst community has always just kind of said demand is inelastic. You know, you don't stop driving your car when um, oil prices go higher. But there are industrial uses. There are, there are many other, and there are places where you do stop driving your car in the world when oil prices go too high. There are real headwinds to oil going substantially higher from that and staying there. Can we spike above that? Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. But a, a sustained higher level, I think that um, for right now, where we're at in the economic recovery, we're not we're not going to sustain higher oil prices through 2022. The other negative feedback loops that are in there are on the supply side. So OPEC's adding 400,000 barrels a day. If we go above $100 a barrel, they know demand. They don't want to kill demand. They want, And they also don't want to incent a bunch of shale production or a bunch of investment. They're happy with where we're at, I think, to a certain extent. So you would see, I believe, a reaction from OPEC. And if we didn't get a reaction from OPEC, at that point, I believe we would get a reaction from shale. So there are two sources of supply that can come online in a three-month or so period, shale, OPEC. And if we got above 100 Let's just say we just follow this straight line higher. Uh, I believe both of those sources of supply would kick in. So you have demand destruction begins. It doesn't mean that the world economy goes into a recession. It just means you start seeing consume, consumption behaviors change when you get up to 90 then $100. That's what demand destruction means. It's not a light switch you turn off or on. It's eroding demand. So you start seeing a slowing of demand, a slowing of travel. Um, those things start coming through the system. Um, and then also the supply side feedback loops also kick in 90 to 100, where OPEC starts ramp pulling forward their production quotas and shale starts considering, hey, there's money in the table. Should we reach out and grab it? 
and they will eventually. The oil market is one of the four threats that you note to the equity market. Uh, what are the other ones? Uh, you know, there's there's inflation, there's housing, there's the macro cycle, and then there, there's valuation. Uh, if you look at the, the CAPE ratio, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio of the S&P 500, we're breathing pretty rarefied air right now, um, it being somewhere about you know 37 or something like that. You know, but then again, people always say valuation is not a catalyst for correction. So valuation is maybe a long-term predictor over 10, 20 years, but short-term, it's not. What's your view on the equity market? You definitely have not been a bear um, during this massive reflationary wave, and you've been focusing your bets on financials and energy. But you know, what else are you seeing in the, in the, in the equity market? I, I uh, And this is why it's important to have models, because we can forecast out, but ultimately, and this is something we've talked about before, we build conviction on fundamentals, but we manage risk on technicals. We manage risk, and our models run. When you when you go across a, a broad swath of assets, our models run off trend and technicals. So, with that said, I think twenty we were bare, we were big bulls coming into twenty twenty one. I caught flag from a few people because, like, if you read my summary of our year ahead outlook in twenty twenty one, it was just like we see equity prices higher, interest rates a little bit higher, but nothing too crazy a massive a boom in economic activity, reopening, yada, yada, yada. We've rode this for the year, but I look at 2022 and I think that there are real headwinds building for 2022. As you mentioned, valuations are a problem. Um, I would never use those for timing, in, in we, but we, we looked at it and even when you account for interest rates, which I think matters to valuations, we're about 25% over fair value base using uh, the CAPE ratio and in, in interest rates as a, a basic model. So you had 25% over valuation there. When you look at midterm election cycles, they're, they're really bad years for the stock market. So midterm elections, if we just took out, we have a chart that shows the equity line of being invested during every other year versus midterm election years. And the two lines are just, you know, and so it's, it's really a rough year. Um, in the cycle, the election cycle to be exposed. I think next year could be even worse because, you know, if we have basically a referendum on more spending or less spending, this market's been running on fiscal spending. If the Republicans do come in and take control of the House and potentially both uh, the House and the Senate, I think the market starts at least worrying about that and gets jitters and sells off because some of the fuel that's been moving this thing higher starts to be become in question. So we have that. Um, inflation, as I said, is, I think has been transitory this year, but next year there are things that are going to become structurally higher in inflation and start pressuring the Fed. Um, finally, we've seen um, what we call the macro cycle. If you look at basically expansions and contractions, we use just to time the cycle out because there's so many revisions, we use OECD data. And so OECD leading indicator says that if you just game out, we're in what we would call mature expansion right now. The mature expansion switches into a peak, which is an area of the, the, the economic cycle you really don't want to be involved in equities. About 200 to 400 days, which puts us squarely into either first third, second third, or back half of, uh, of 2022 for the, that peak area of the economic uh, cycle. And so, yeah, and then the final thing would be oil. You know, I think, like I said, this current acute stress we've seen in the oil markets 
is again likely to be transitory when when the energy crisis in China and then in Europe abates and those prices come down. Assuming we don't want to have a crazy cold polar vortex winter, OPEC supply comes on. All these things we've talked about. It's going to calm the oil market down into the beginning and middle of next year. But at the end of next year, I think number one, you're closer to pre-pandemic demand levels, which we could be back there at that point. And OPEC will have exhausted this excess spare capacity. Without that excess spare capacity hanging over the market, now we're in a place where we can really get into a super cycle. And as we talked about, that's negative ultimately for the economy. And that's when prices, there is no feedback loop to cap prices in that scenario. Oil prices go where they need to go to kill demand and not just kill a little bit of demand in emerging markets, but kill demand. And so that's much higher oil prices. And that's where we set the table for that. Um, so those things come together in, in 2022. I would be cautious. We're going to follow our models and see what they say. And, and that will ultimately dictate what we do because that's just philosophically how we approach it. But we need to look around the corner and say, what is our model? Models doesn't know about all this stuff. So we need to look at it, point it out for clients and say, hey, these are risks. This is not like 2021. Yeah, Warren, what I always I like about talking to you is I always get confused and I always end up scratching my head, which I actually like because, you know, someone has a narrative, the dollar is going to go way lower, it's going to go way higher. It's, it's very easy to digest, but it's not real learning. I feel like when I'm confused like this is when I'm learning the most. And hopefully, you know, people watching this now feel the same way. So Warren, yeah, help me ex explain, uh, view this, because if you think economic activity is going to contract and we're at that mature phase of the cycle, you said you don't want to own equities during that time. I imagine if, if economic activity is contracting, commodities too are going to contract. Or is this such a weird thing, a weird phase that no, actually, commodity prices will do okay. And also, you're saying, oh, economy is slowing, buy bonds. But like everything that you've been saying has just been made me think that bonds are a poison chalice right now because of you know you know housing inflation and the like. Oil, yeah. Time frames. It's all about time frames, and that does get confusing. You know, if you could be talking, I could say one thing, and I'm thinking of a ten or twenty year time frame. I could say another thing. I'm talking about 2022. If the things that I'm talking about come to pass for 2022, I think that you know you have a tighter Fed, you have political uncertainty and potential kind of I wouldn't call it austerity, but like that threat hangs over the the markets. Uh, and you see kind of starting, you see economic activity, at least the rate of change of economic activity start to roll over and you see oil price, prices soften as, as OPEC puts supply back onto the market. So those things are a, that's kind of a deflationary picture. You know, it's not like debt destruction deflation, but I think that if those things all came to pass, that you would see bonds outperform stocks relatively. What I would say is the reason what, what the way we build our firm and the way we manage markets is we let our models tell us where to go. But in that scenario, just to square it up for you, yeah, I think that we would see bonds outperform. It'd be a pretty non-consensus thing because I think almost everybody's saying get bonds out of your portfolio. And, and I think that long-term, they're probably right. Those are good arguments as we started this whole conversation off with. But we're talking about next year. What happens if, if we cut off the fiscal stimulus? What happens if Oil prices kind of start getting soft. What happens if we do peak in economic activity? I, those things are all traditionally deflationary and bond positive, stocks negative. So that's going to be a good test. It'll be an interesting year and it'll be a, a test for, you know, that kind of uh, do bonds still provide you any kind of support? I think that, you know, again, these are long term. 
these are really long-term uh, effects that we're talking about at the beginning of this conversation. And, you know, I, I it, it doesn't mean that we can't have another bond rally. It doesn't mean that uh, 2022 is going to play out just that way. We're looking 20 years out into the future and trying to position ourselves for that time frame. Got it. So on the short term, let's say the next year, what you said sounds like it's not good for the price of oil commodities. And yet you are very, you, you plowed into real assets, gold, real estate, commodities, including Bitcoin, which we will get into. Why are you very into real assets at this time if you're sort of macro view is that you get a, a tightening of commodities price demand? Well, ma macro views are a dime a dozen. In my yeah. view, you asked me to like, let's look into my crystal ball. And my crystal ball is, you know, I, I can I have reasoning and logic, and I think I can tie all this stuff back, and I'm an honest person. But a, part of that is to say, like, there are no good crystal balls. Like, find me a macro forecaster and, and show me their, you know, their track record. You know, for the most part, it's it's uh, it's hit or miss. And, you know, and I'm no different. That's the truth. You know, I am no different. I, I have my own shortcomings and some and blind spots and things I could miss. And things happen that you just can't predict. I mean, who, you know, very few people saw COVID coming before like, you know, February, we were out of the oil market in February of 2020. But before that, you know, we didn't see it. Yeah. And also just on the macro view, it's, it's, there's so many predictors that odds are someone's going to have a view that will be right, you know? So it's like, oh, that guy's a genius. He flipped a coin and he was right seven times in a row, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm learning, running a, a, a company and, you know, people like those predictions like, oh my gosh, it would be so easy to get more Twitter followers and to get more traction, even to get more, more media if we came out and said oil at 200. And I just got on Twitter and just pounded the freaking table every day on yeah. oil and just, you know, glossed over the, the other side. It's easy. Warren, you got to get more Twitter followers. You, you, I think I have more than you. That's so unfair. You, you deserve, you are such a smart person. What is your Twitter follower? So hopefully people watching this. Just Warren Pies. Pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Oh, there explain are, why is it, why is your company called 314? Uh, you know, pies. Basically, like you know, 314 is pie pies, and uh, there are some one of my other partners. It's a meaningful thing to to her as well. Uh, but it, it, the, honestly, going back to the next year and what we're going to do, models. I mean, if you take your time and you think about the world and you quantify it and you have rules and you follow your rules, that that's the way to do it. And the other factor, and we've pointed this out, there's a there's an ego thing. When you make a big prediction and you stake your personality and reputation to that, your ego gets wrapped into your call. It's really hard to unwind that. And markets don't, you're not going to do well in markets if you have a big ego and you can't admit defeat. You're going to be wrong a lot. Um, Jim Simons was best investor, you know, basically ever. And his hit rate was like 51%. So he's wrong a lot you know, with his, with, with, with this quantitative system. So you're going to be wrong a lot, get used to it, be ready to change your mind, be ready to admit defeat. And more importantly than anything, have a system that you spend some time thinking through and building out that's going to guide you. And that system right now is telling us continue to ride these real assets, continue to ride commodities and Bitcoin and underweight bonds. And we'll do that until that shifts, but it will shift if I'm right about 2022. Yeah. I think the, you got some beautiful quotes about ego in uh, your report about how being wrong wounds the ego and admitting you're wrong wounds the ego even more because the ego is a survivor. It distorts the mind 
to shield itself from pain. Denial is the preferred armor. So if you invest in a stock at 60 and it goes to 40, the humble thing is to say, hey, actually, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should sell this at a loss. And they see, you know, I've heard Mark Yusko, who's a co-host of another show on Blockworks with, with uh, Mike Ippolito, said that uh, Julian Robertson, you know, legendary hedge fund investor, what he did best is... Uh, cut his weeds and water the flowers. Like his stock went from 60 to 40, he sold it. And then if stock went from 60 to 160, he bought more. And that I think is actually humble because contrarian investing is, you know, you do want to be a contrarian, but like you don't want to go buy a stock at 60, it goes to 40 and then you buy more because maybe there's a reason it went from 60 to 40. Maybe, just maybe the market knows something that you don't. And so what your models are, it's very quantitative. I don't understand them fully or really at all. So I don't want to get, get into them. Um, but they're essentially a very complex version of trend following, which is you actually buy things which go up. So you were you know, bu uh, bullish on Bitcoin for your macro view, but also you know you were very into it. It was a huge uh, source of returns for you when you had this huge up run up late last year, early this year. But then you actually were underweighted towards the top because it started to underperform. Whereas I actually think that's where most people uh, sort of bought the dip. They were like, oh, it went from 54 to 48. It's a buy, you know, when actually you should be sort of following the crowd. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think Bitcoin is a perfect example. Like, like I said, you build conviction off of fundamentals, but you manage risk off technicals. And so with Bitcoin, we started the company and we said, okay, let, let's come to this with a fresh set of eyes. We know there are really big time names who think that Bitcoin is like an outright Ponzi scheme. And we think there are big time names who, and, and important smart people who think Bitcoin is going to change the world, you know? And so we had to come to this and first decide where were we in this, in this, in this debate. And our decision was, our analysis was that Bitcoin is not a Ponzi scheme. It has a true use case. Um, we don't know how to value it in particular. I think that the tools that are available are rudimentary. Um, so that was our first hurdle. It's like, okay, it's not a Ponzi. It has a real use case. This is a real innovative product that does something for some people in the world. And if you miss it, you just haven't thought through it deeply enough. The thing that I think differentiated our view though was the next step was, okay, there's people who think that Bitcoin's gonna kill fiat. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. Um, it is not competition to the US dollar. Our viewpoint is in fact that it's competition and a problem for closed economies like China. And we've seen that kind of play out over the last few months as China has banned incrementally trans Bitcoin transactions, Bitcoin mining. You know, they don't want Bitcoin because Bitcoin facilitates asset flow from their closed economy into more free jurisdictions like the United States. And so it's ultimately a net positive for those open economies that respect property rights and are, um, you know, more attractive as an end market for, for those users. And so it's a facilitator of asset flows in our views, in our view. And so our point was, we thought that Bitcoin would is actually dollar supportive. It supports the dollar's dominance. And so our idea was that you would see this basically be understood by the U.S. politicians and regulators and they would accept Bitcoin through regulation. Regulation is not to be feared, it's to be, it's to be embraced if you're a Bitcoin or crypto person. And we've now seen that. And I think these first ETFs that have come out is the, it's the official acceptance of the United States that we've accepted Bitcoin, accepted crypto. And it's only gonna grow from here within the United States. This next period of time is probably going to be a pretty 
you don't want to be underweight Bitcoin during this period of time. Let's put it that way. Uh, so that was our framework. And but again, our model has been it's basic trend stuff that is uh, that's working in the background that's really going to guide us. And so we'll manage the the month to month risk of Bitcoin in that position through our our models, which are they're overweight and bullish and still riding uh, Bitcoin at this point in time. Yeah, you were very early, Warren, in saying that Bitcoin is not a threat to the U.S. dollar. It's a threat to gold. Gold, uh, historically, uh, you know, has been the ultimate store of wealth for a long time. It was currency. Now it's seen as uh, an unofficial sort of backing, like the, the true store, store of value. And Bitcoin is really ebbing up against that. Um, you know, gold still has a market cap, you know, somewhere around 10 times the size of Bitcoin, but it's drastically underperformed Bitcoin. Do you think that Bitcoin will continue to dominate gold um and if not you know what what are any any potential catalysts because gold it really feels like gold is undervalued at this point like if gold's not going up now when fiscal deficits are blowing out interest rates are super low real rates are deeply negative likely to be suppressed for a very long time all other assets are you know in some way sort of inflated it feels like gold should be a lot higher but you know as you noted in your report it's it's been stuck in the mud so you know, what's your outlook on gold? And, and do you think that Bitcoin, um, you know, will one day unseat gold and have a higher market cap? Yeah, I, I think that there is, there is a drag um, from Bitcoin on gold. Uh, when we look at, so not to get too technical, but one of the aspects of our model is we do um, basically an ML uh, assessment of all the different assets we can invest in. And the ML algorithm which it's not anything that it's not our opinion. The ML algorithm goes through and finds similarly behaving assets based totally on price and volatility. And when you look at it, when you break that model open, it's interesting because it groups gold and Bitcoin together. Um, we actually have like a, a little diagram on that. Uh, and, and they're on their own, they're in their own bucket of the model, which I found really interesting because I think theoretically, I always thought there's a good chance that gold and Bitcoin would be competing for the same pool of capital. But the model and just a pure quantitative computer um, algorithm is seeing the same thing, which I think is really interesting. And so in our model, in our framework, because of that, we kind of only have one set allocation that can go to either gold or Bitcoin. And it splits between those two because of that. And we are much more overweight Bitcoin and gold. And I think that's kind of reflecting what's going on in the market right now, that they fill a very similar place. You know, I think, as we said, Bitcoin's use case, I think main use case is to transfer assets from draconian closed economies into open jurisdictions that respect private property rights. And I think in a lot of ways, that was how gold first came to be as well, is a, is a transfer of wealth. You can store wealth in a, a very compact uh, way. And so if you think of it in, in that analogy, Bitcoin is kind of an evolution of gold. It's kind of a, a better version. I mean, now you can put, you know, millions of dollars in a thumb drive versus a briefcase, you know, that weighs however much. And so um, I think Bitcoin is taking from gold. Now, uh, when we look at the gold market, it's been in this range, 1680 to 1950. And this thing has been like volatility is hitting new lows and, I would say that 
you want, when you see a big range like this, you want to respect it and let that range resolve. So 1680 has been huge support. If we broke that, I would be concerned. 1950 has been resistance. If we break that, I think it's probably signaling a continuation of the secular bull market. Gun to my head, that's what I think we're going to do. I think that it, you're right, all the things you said. There are too many tailwinds, and I think the world's big enough to let gold and Bitcoin survive together. Um, and there's always going to be this yin and yang. Who knows? Maybe Bitcoin falls apart. It just, it's had so many big drawdowns. Could have another one at some point. Gold starts becoming more attractive to kind of old school investors or whatever and gives it that bid. So I don't think that it's a zero-sum game between gold and Bitcoin. I think they both can can do well, but certainly right now you want to be in that, you want to be riding the Bitcoin wave over gold. Yeah, definitely. And back to the point of following trends, uh, I, I think when Bitcoin's at all time highs, that's a pretty, uh, this is so obvious, but it's, it's a bullish signal and you should not be saying because at all time highs, it must be overvalued. Like actually when it's been cut in half, that's actually when it's more likely to you know be cut down even more. And you know, I, I'm drawing on like the research of Mev Faber, who has looked at like, if you only buy stocks when they're at all time highs, and if they're not, you buy treasury bonds, you actually do pretty well. Do you think that Bitcoin ETF news is as big as people say it is? I, mean, I think it's, it's such a dominant narrative that I'm always uh, skeptical of like going alongside what literally everyone is thinking. But I'm thinking, you know, in January, everyone was bearish bonds. People were saying the market is record short bonds. And of course, it was correct to be record short bonds. So sometimes, the, the, you know, everyone is right. Yeah, I think um, you don't want to be a contrarian just for the sake of being a contrarian, because that's pretty consensus. If you think about that statement, <laughs> you know, actually being consensus is a meta contrarian is what I say. So if you say I run with the consensus, that's meta contrarian. Um, Bitcoin being at all time highs, you don't want to fade that. The, the thing that I think is, you know, pretty interesting about Bitcoin and it's the big question going forward in my mind is one of the reasons we were comfortable putting such a big weight of Bitcoin in our model is when Bitcoin's fallen apart in the past, it's not systemic. So it doesn't flow into other assets. So we've seen these huge declines, including the decline we saw earlier this year, whatever it was, 40% decline this year. Um, in, in nothing, there was no bleed over from Bitcoin into the stock market. And as an asset allocator, if you're making Bitcoin a specific part of your portfolio, that's actually a really good thing because you can like have confidence that if I have a you know five or seven percent percent position here, it goes down by fifty percent. It's isolated to this part of my portfolio. Now, as these ETFs become bigger and Bitcoin becomes a bigger asset, does that relationship change? Can you have a collapse in Bitcoin that doesn't spill over into other assets? The evidence right now is that it doesn't, but you have to be open that that's going to change. That could be a, a potential problem. And But the bottom line of all of it is that I think the ETFs are a big deal. It's a new market. And one of the problems people have is, and I saw this, somebody said this to me the other day, is like, you know, with Bitcoin, I'm learning that you, most stocks and, and markets, you, you buy the rumor, sell the news. With Bitcoin, you buy the rumor, buy the news. <laughs> You know, and it's because it's such a new market still in the news that we're hearing. This is not just news. It's not just saying, hey, one person likes Bitcoin more. It's like there are pools of capital lined up waiting to get into this asset. And there in the door is only the doorway is only so big. And so this capital is going to keep going in. Will there be weak points? Yeah. But I think you're going to get these futures based ETFs. It's going to be physical based ETFs. You're going to see the GBTC conversion. All these things are going to happen. And all the boomers and people who couldn't buy Bitcoin on their own, 
they're going to flood in. And it, and it happened at some point this year, we said, the risk for many years ago was having Bitcoin exposure, having too much Bitcoin exposure. That has flipped and the risk is being too underweight or not not exposed to Bitcoin. You're being left behind. And that's that's going to drive this next leg of the bull market. So I don't know where it goes. We don't do the forecasting and all that stuff. I think the stock to flow model is garbage. But um, at the end of the day, I think we go higher. Yeah, talk to me about the stock to flow model. This is a very uh, you know common model. A lot of people like, which says when the when there's a Bitcoin halving, when the 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 amount of Bitcoin that is produced is, is cut in half, or the hash rate. Um, that is very good because the supply is diminished, and historically, the right after a halving, you, you, it's the beginning of a mega Bitcoin bull market. Um, so some people use it for timing, and uh, you have a chart uh, of the different Bitcoin halvings, and you have a different, very different view. Tell us why you think that the the stock to flow mo- model uh, misses a lot, to put it lightly. Well, it's just a simple linear regression between two correlated variables, and so like. We already know that if you go historically, Bitcoin price has risen. I mean, one of the problems with putting Bitcoin in a historic model is there is survivorship bias. Like you have to have some real guts to believe that Bitcoin was going to do what it's done, you know, uh, eight years ago or whatever. You know, those were big bets. And so you, to put that in a model alongside treasuries now, there's survivorship bias. You have to recognize that. But we all know now that the chart is just this straight up. And we also all know, by the way, Bitcoin is constructed that the supply growth is down due to two halvings. And so when you run a regression on these two variables, aha, you find a fit. No other market we know of is so simplistic. No other market we know of, no other commodity market we know of, uh, gold, nothing works in that same way. You would never do a stock to flow model on gold. You know, there's an entire, like every Bitcoin that's ever been mined is available to be bought. That's the supply, not the what's being mined in this at this day or this year, and so a price that incents that those those holders to become sellers is ultimately what you should be looking for. And so, I think it's absolutely the wrong model. I think you know it's great that some people. I don't want to be like a jerk about it, but you know it's just it, it's really pretty rudimentary when you're thinking of modeling markets and and pretty. Um, it just shows how early this market is. It's kind of fun to get into a market and see like, oh, this is the best model we have. Okay, we can do a lot better here. Yeah, well, also it's like, it's a sample size of three, right? It's, there've been. Yeah, and it's not just the halvings, it's just the the the, line, the growth of supply that they look at. And then they, they, they peg a specific, it's a, you know, a regression will spit it out. You know, you, you say, what is supply growth going to be? Well, then what's the, what's the price going to be? It's very simple, over simple, you know, it's just projecting past trends straight into the future and, you know, false sense of precision and all that other stuff. There are a lot of problems with it. One thing, Warren, that I want to ask you about is the correlation of Bitcoin. That's another thing people say it's, it's Bitcoin is uncorrelated to the stock market. And uh, there's a brilliant analyst who works at ARC who did a study and, and historically it has been essentially uncorrelated. Sometimes it has a positive correlation of 0.1, very weak. Sometimes a negative correlation of negative 0.1, also very weak, and it sort of switches back, forth, back, forth to the to the stock market. But since March of 2020, since that epic sell-off in risk assets, 
Bitcoin was swept up with that. And since then, the correlation has been positive. So Bitcoin has been going down on the days that stocks have been going down, up on the days that it goes up. You said that when Bitcoin plummets, stocks don't really care because stocks is you know so many times bigger as a market than, than Bitcoin. But when stocks sell off, Bitcoin is affected. Tell us about that. And, you know, uh, do you have some doubts when people say like, oh, yeah, Bitcoin is uncorrelated? Yeah, absolutely. So what we did was we broke down um, Bitcoin's correlation on down days. I forget where we thresholded it at for stock market down days. So correlation between Bitcoin and stock market. And for most most days, there is very little beta or correlation co-movement between Bitcoin and the stock market. So you would be pretty easy to take the whole history and say, aha, you know, we, there is no relationship here, but during periods of stock weakness, Bitcoin sells off that relationship. It's a, on those days, the beta goes from, I believe basically zero to like 1.6 or seven. So it's not just one for one. It's like, it's a, it's a leveraged bet on stock market performance on those down days. And so, yeah, I definitely have a doubt that, um, you know, you could really get away with saying Bitcoin's totally an uncorrelated asset. I think the, the right way to frame it is that um, the, the stock market genuinely doesn't care if Bitcoin falls apart, but Bitcoin will not hold up in the face of a stock market route. That's the historic evidence. Warren, it's been fantastic having you on Blockworks. It's so it's so hard because you've got so many, they're so complicated. But if you could give viewers just a a broad level macro view of, of where do you think we're going? Is there any way to wrap in housing inflation, uh, globalization, Bitcoin, real assets, sew it all together for us and uh, give us a conclusion that we can hopefully uh, grasp? Uh, near term, I think you want to kind of uh, ignore some of the noise around supply chain pain, right? Those, those problems are transitory. However, I do believe things have changed and are changing coming out of the coronavirus pandemic and many of the disinflationary tailwinds that we saw will go away. So globalization, I believe, will become more regional, which is inflationary. The shale revolution from 2014 forward is no longer going to provide an a disinflationary tailwind. So long term, I would expect inflation to level up. That's that's where I see um, the market going. Now, I think in the short term, you want to ride your real assets and ride the trends. Bitcoin and commodities have really the strongest trends that we can find, and we're riding those assets for right now. We do see a potential bump in the road for 2022. So, you know, we'll follow our models. If you really, if you weren't following our models and you just wanted to basically gauge risk, I think risk for, for all these and reflationary, economically sensitive assets uh, goes up next year. So, Long term, you want to stay with those real assets, stay with Bitcoin, make sure you have them in your mix. But next year could be a little bit of a deflationary catch up. You got to watch out for all those factors that we talked about next year that are going to kind of pressure that trade a little bit. Just an elevator pitch. Warren, thank you so much. Before you go, can you tell viewers a little bit about where they can find you and uh, your research at 314? You can find me on Twitter. Warren Pies is the, the handle. Uh, 314 is uh, 3F underscore research on Twitter or at 3F underscore research. Our website, 314research.com. You can learn more about our products, our models, and what we offer. And if you reach out to me, I can uh, give you a little bit more sample research and explain what we do and how we add value for you know institutional clients mainly. So, yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, I'm really excited to see what you do with uh, Blockworks, and I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. 
Thank you, Warren. I'm a big fan of yours as well. Um, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Warren, and thank you to everyone watching.